100 years ago, exactly, an event took place that shook the Jewish world and many parts of the non-Jewish world to its core. In April 1911, a body of a 12-year-old Christian child was found slain. The body of Andrzej Uczynski discovered dead eight days after he disappeared one day going to school. The body was found in a pit near the city of Kiev, today the capital of the Ukraine. And although initially the local investigation concluded that it was a story revolving around money and revenge, higher echelons among the police of Kiev and members of the Tsarist regime, the Tsar then was Nikolaius, Nikolaius II from the Romanov family, this is a few years before the revolution in 1917, which would overthrow the Russian uh, monarchy, and ultimately the Tsar and his family would be executed, according to most historians. In 1911, at this time, there were patriots who felt that this was a great opportunity to remove attention from the corruption in the Tsarist regime and from the various trends around Russia which were, which were seeking to remove control from the Tsar. And so a theory developed that the murderer of this child was none other than a Jew. And the evidence was produced the child was found not far from a brick factory near Kiev. The famous brick factory owned by a man named Zaitsev, a Jew named Zaitsev. And Menachem Mendel Bayless was an employee in Zaitsev's brick factory. Bayless, the accusation was, murdered Andrei Uchinsky a few days before Pesach, April 1911, Tafresh Ayin and squeezed out from his young body five full glasses of blood in order to be able to bake Pesach Matzah together with Christian blood in the tradition of the blood libels that went back for many generations. The first recorded blood libel we know was created in England in eastern England in 1149, in the 12th century, there was a Christian child, William, who was found dead, and a Christian monk named Thomas accused the Jews of Norwich in England in murdering William. And although the government then did not agree with this libel, but it opened up the theory in the box. And we know for hundreds of years later, Jews have suffered terribly as a result of this 
baseless idea of the blood libel that before Pesach they murder a Christian child in order to use his blood for matzah and also mix it into the four cups of wine to have Christian blood in it. And it's fascinating, till today in many parts of the Muslim world, this story is still propagated and written about and discussed almost as a fact. Actually as a fact, the Jews need Christian or Muslim blood for their Pesach matzah. Bayless used to bake matzah for his boss, for Zaitsev. And the accusation went to Bayless in July 1911. Menachem Mendel Bayless was arrested. Bayless was a simple Jew. He came from a Hasidic family, a religious Hasidic family, although he himself was not that religious. He had a wife, he had five children. He lived an ordinary life. He was not affluent, he wasn't rich. He didn't have many connections. In July he was arrested and he remained in prison for two years. During those, those two years, a vicious anti-Semitic campaign spread around Russia in which scholars, religious, Christian religious scholars, writers, essayists, politicians and anti-Semites of all stripes and colors explained that the murder was motivated by religion. Bayless was acting on behalf of the Jewish people. It wasn't an individual crime for money or revenge. It was actually motivated by ideas in Judaism. And the Jewish world was shaken to its core, not only in Russia, but wherever the news spread according to the means of communication one century ago throughout the world. Two years later, more than two years later, the trial began. A few days after Yom Kippur, Tafresh Ayin Dalad, 1913, the trial begins in the Ukraine. The trial would continue for around 37 days straight without interruption. Around 300 witnesses would testify in this trial from both sides. Now, it was obvious that Bayless and the Jewish people needed an attorney who would be able to defend Bayless in this case. The lawyer that headed the defense team was a legendary Jewish advocate whose name was Usher Grusenberg or Oscar Grusenberg. Oscar Grusenberg was a Jew who was born in the Ukrainian city of Yekaterinoslav, later became known as Dnepropetrovsk. It's actually the same city where the chief rabbi was Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, the father of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he served as the rabbi of Yekaterinoslav, and then its name changed to Dnepropetrovsk in the Ukraine, and that's the city actually where the Rebbe was raised. He was born in Nikolaev in the Ukraine, but he was raised in Dnepropetrovsk. Grusenberg was born in Yekaterinoslav, he enrolled in Kiev University to study jurisprudence, he became one of the most celebrated lawyers in Russia. Oscar Grusenberg knew very well that a trial against Bayless will not only be directed against an individual, but rather it's going to be directed against all of Jewish Talmudic and Midrashic and Kabbalistic literature. Proving supposedly that this murder was motivated and inspired by Judaism, by the Torah, by the Talmud. And the defense would have to take all of this into calculation. Some of the greatest rabbis and Jewish leaders of the time got involved. For example, the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Bershneerson, whose yard site was just commemorated on the 2nd of Nisan, who lived in Belarus in Lubavitch, 
became heavily involved in the case. Actually, he was instrumental in getting Usher Grusenberg to defend Bayless because Bayless didn't have these connections and Oscar Grusenberg was one of the most celebrated attorneys of the time. He also appointed his student, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, a relative of his, the rabbi of Yekaterinoslav, to assist the defense team throughout the entire case because major scholarship was needed. The defense team was joined by the rabbi of Moscow, Rabbi Yaakov Maza. Rabbi Yaakov Maza was a great intellectual. He was also an extraordinary orator and a prolific writer. His name was Maza, Mem Zion Aleph It's an acronym, Mizera Aaron HaKoyin, from the descendants of Aaron because he was a Kohen. Rabbi Yaakov Maza. He was a Rav Mitam, which means he was appointed by the Russian government to represent them to the Jews in Moscow and the Jews of Moscow to them. But he was young, none, these rabbis weren't always accepted by the Jewish community, but he was fairly respected, especially after the trial. And many other great rabbis who helped out. Uh, just uh, an interesting tidbit. The name Yaakov uh, Maza, there's a famous Jew today whose name is also Yaakov Maza. It's just, uh, Yaakov was changed to Jackie, and Maza was changed to Mason. But Jackie Mason's original name is Yaakov Moshe Maza, you can ask. So, Rabbi Maza was actually on the defense team, and he was one of the witnesses in the trial. The 12 jurors were chosen very, very carefully. Menachem Mendel ben Tuvia Bayless, 39, was placed on the stand, indicted for having murdered, together with other people who weren't discovered. This child, Andrei Yuchinsky. Uh, it was a fascinating trial, because who was on trial? Not just an individual, but all of Jewish scholarship, all of Jewish ritual, Jewish law, Jewish perspectives, Jewish view views. The prosecutors claimed that there were 13 wounds discovered on the child's body, representing the significance of the number 13 in Judaism. Of course, it was revealed later that there weren't 13 wounds, there were 14 wounds, but why confuse anybody with the facts? And then the crucial theme and question was posed. There is a statement in the Talmud in Shraktate Yevomas Daf Samach Aleph, Yevomas page 61. You, the Jewish people, are defined in the Bible as Adam, as a human being. The nations of the world are not called Adam. Ah! The anti-Semites exclaimed, Look, here you have in the Talmud, black and white, unambiguously, the Gentile is not a person. If the Gentile is not a person, the Gentile is like an animal, you need his blood to kill him. Here you have a source in the Talmud, Rabbi Shimon by Yechayin, another tract that Yevamah 61. You're called Adam, they're not called Adam. Rabbi Yaakov Maza, the rabbi of Moscow, was called to explain this statement of the Talmud. The story goes that his explanation, which as you'll see, 
people don't realize is rooted directly in Talmudic sources. But I'll get to that in a moment. His explanation, he actually, this explanation he heard from another rabbi who was involved in the case, whose name was Rabbi Meir Shapiro. The legendary Rabbi Meir Shapiro was then the rabbi of Galina in Poland, later became the rabbi of Lublin. He founded the famous yeshiva, Yeshiva Schachme Lublin, that was of course destroyed its students decimated, most of its students decimated during the Holocaust. A few survivors live till today. He's also the one who initiated the idea of Dafyomi, of learning every day a page of Talmud, very popular in many Jewish communities. And Rabbi Yaakov Maza presented the following insight into this statement of Rabbi Shimon Bar in the Talmud. In Hebrew, most words come in a singular form and in a plural form. Let's take the word for a human being, for a person. Ish, a man. There is ish and there is anoshim. Ish is a man, anoshim are men. Isha is a woman. Noshim, women, plural. Tapuach is an apple. Tapuchim, apples. Har, a mountain. Harim, mountains. Adama, earth. Admos, earths in the plural. Aryeh is a lion, Arayas are lions, etc., etc. You get the point. There's one exception. Adam. Adam has no plural form. Adam means a mensch, a person, a human being. Adamim is not human beings. It's interesting. Adam comes from the word Adama, which means earth. In its etymology, earth, we do have it in plural, admois. But the word Adam, as a person, has no Lashen Rabbim. It does not come in a plural form, only in a singular form. It never becomes plural. It's never many. It's always one. So Rabbi Maza said, this is what the Talmud means. This characteristic to be called Adam, in which there's never a plurality, it's always one. There's no Adamim, there's no Adamais, it's not like Anoshim. This characteristic is unique to the Jewish people. It's not shared by other nations of the world. Of course, other nations are called people. It's the mission and the ethics of the fathers that says, Chaviv Adam Shanivra B'Tselem. Every human being is beloved, created in the image of God, as Genesis says about every person, created in the image of God, and therefore, as Genesis says, to spill the blood of another human being is a form of killing God, because every human being was created in the divine image, B'Tselem Alekim, and there's a death penalty in the Torah for killing a human being, any human being. for murdering a human being. There's a death penalty. But here we are referring to something specific. Atom Kruyim, Adam. You're called Adam, in which there's no plural. There's only one. And that's unique to the Jewish people. There may be millions of Jews, Rabbi Mazda told the court. There may be millions of Jews around the world. But Atom Kruyim, Adam, there are not millions of Jews. There's only one Jew. You don't need more evidence, he said. Take a look at this trial of Menachem Mendel Bayless. 
an isolated, simple Jew living in Kiev in the Ukraine. He was accused of murdering a Christian child, Andrei Uchinsky, in April 1911, two and a half years ago. Who's sitting on the stand? Who's on trial? Bayless is on trial. Every Jew is on trial. Every Jewish text from the beginning of time is on trial. The entire Talmud written almost two millennia ago is on trial. The entire body of Jewish law is on trial. Every Jewish volume is on trial. If an individual Russian citizen or an Italian citizen would be accused of murder, would anybody even entertain the idea of accusing all of the Russian people, all of the Italian people, in inspiring it and being behind it and motivating it and agreeing to it and acquiescing to it? That would be ludicrous. But here, one Jew is accused falsely of doing a crime. The whole Jewish world is being accused. Everybody is guilty of murder. Everybody is guilty of wanting to suck the blood of a young Christian child. Why? Atem kruim adam. This is unique to the Jewish people. There are one. There's not many. There's one. And what happens to one happens to all of them. Affects all of them. People don't see many Jews. In every Jew they see the entire people. It's literally like one person. You can't divide, you can't differentiate between one Jew and another Jew. He said, this is a unique quality of the Jewish people and it's the way they experience themselves as well. Rabbi Maza said, if an individual citizen was accused of a terrible crime, who would be there behind him? His close friends, her close friends, his family, her family, their community... But that's about it. Can you imagine that people from another country are completely not affected by the case? Would be part of this trial? No. But look what is happening here. Bayless's trial affects the entire Jewish world from one end of the civilization to the other end of civilization. Wherever Jews are, they're shaken. They're praying. They're advocating. They're screaming. They're paying. They're supporting. They're helping. Why? They never heard Mendel Bayless's name. If not for this, he would have lived and died anonymously. That's the case. But they feel that it's their trial. Why? Because atem kruyim adam. You're one. It's one person. Millions of people, but they're one person. It's limbs of one body. What happens to one limb? I feel in the other limb. The left arm can't say, I don't care what happens to the right arm. The heart can't say, I don't care what happens to the brain. One, one organism. It's one Adam. I want to say that this idea is actually clearly articulated in the Medrash. One of the earliest Midrashim before the Talmud is the Mechilta. And the Mechilta in Exodus, in the portion of Yisroi, quotes the verse in Jeremiah where the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar, the one who destroyed the first temple in 586 BCE, before the common era, calls the Jewish people a sheep. Se. And the Mechilta asks, why did Nebuchadnezzar use the imagery of a sheep to define the Jews?
And the Mechilta answers, there's something unique about a sheep. Kishaechod meivorov choyla kol heivorim argishin. When one of its limbs are hurting, all the other limbs also are hurting. This is the quality of the sheep. It's a frail animal. It's a sensitive animal. And when one of its limbs hurts, it affects the entire sheep. Other animals are very different. Says Nebuchadnezzar, the Jewish people are the same way. When one of them is killed, they all become sick. They're all crushed, they're all broken, they're all devastated. But Nebuchadnezzar says, by many nations of the world, by the nations of the world, it's not that way. And he testifies, he says, one of them is defeated, and the others celebrate. One of them is defeated, and the others actually are happy. The Jewish people, he says, are not like that. It's their own defeat. It's their own loss. They're like a sheep. Sep Zura Yisrael. The Jews are compared to a sheep. Or, as presented by the Bela's trial, it's Adam. The explanation left a very deep impact on the court. After a long, long trial, the court threw out the charges which were clearly fabricated. Mendel Bayliss at last was set free. He moved to Palestine at the time. Eretz Israel, Israel was called Palestine at the time. Financially, it didn't work out for him, so he moved to the United States of America. He wrote here a book about his memoirs, and he died in 1934 in New York. He has a child, a daughter, 102 years old. This occurred one century ago, in 1911, and today, a hundred years later, we remember the story. In one of his talks, Shabbos Bamidbar Tovshin Lamed, the Shabbos portion of Bamidbar 1970, the Lubavitcher Rebbe quoted this mechilta about Jews being like a sheep, and he asked a question. Why is it Nebuchadnezzar who said it? Why is it relevant to our rabbis that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who said this? The truth could have been articulated by the Torah itself, not put it in the mouth of the Babylonian emperor. And the Rebbe explained two explanations. The sages were telling us that even the non-Jewish world knows this. Even the Vuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor who had no extra love to the people of Israel, on the contrary, he decimated the land, he destroyed Judea, he burnt the temple, he exiled the Jewish people. He also understood the intrinsic, intimate unity between all the parts of the Jewish people. And now you can't really differentiate between them because they are like limbs of one body. Even the Vuchadnezzar knows this. Should we not know it? And there was one more reason. Nebuchadnezzar is the first one who exiled the people. 
True, the ten tribes were exiled earlier, but they assimilated, they're lost. They were exiled by Assyria. But Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, exiled the Jewish people to Babylonia, present-day Iraq, from where they were dispersed to other countries from which the exile began, because even when they came back to rebuild the second temple, only 42,000 Jews came back with Ezra, back to Jerusalem. Most Jews remained in exile. And this began a new era of Jewish history where Jews would not be anymore in one country. They would not be a nationality like any other classic nation. Americans live in America and the English live in English and the French live in France and so forth. They would be one people but dispersed all over the world and the question is, are they still one people? Nebuchadnezzar, who initiated exile, made this claim and says, there's going to be a long exile now. The Jews will be dispersed all over the place. But they're like one sheep. And when one limb hurts... Every other limb feels it. And in my mind, in my heart, I feel that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, whose birthday we commemorate tonight, whose presence graced the Jewish world and the world for so many years, Above all of his accomplishments, his scholarship, his erudition, his activism, and so forth, this theme stood as one of the greatest ideas and passions that the Rebbe embodied and continued to taught, to teach. That when we look at the Jewish world, when we look at the Jewish people, we ought to see the oneness that encompasses the entire Jewish people and how. The path of isolation, the path of apathy, the path of detachment, the path of carelessness. Let me take care of my own, of my own family, my own community, my own type. Runs contrary to the essential fabric of the Jewish people, which even the non-Jewish world knows. We are one nation. What happens to you affects me, what happens to me affects you. I am responsible for you because I'm part of you and you're part of me. Even when we're in exile, even when we're dispersed around the whole world, I may not know you. I don't know the name Bayless, but we're Adam, we're one person. The Rebbe's vision was always, You stand, all of you, everybody stands before God, and everybody has something unique to contribute. Every Jew has an indispensable contribution in the divine symphony called Knesset Yisrael. Everyone has their place of dignity. And if, One is missing, the entire organism is flawed, it's incomplete. The former Prime Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, was the celebrated general. He now lies in a coma for quite a few years after a second stroke a few years ago. And a few months after the Six-Day War, 1967, which he served as one of the great generals who brought victory to a people, in serious danger, suffered a personal tragedy. His son, a nine-year-old boy, in the house, was playing with one of his father's guns, and he killed himself with a bullet. It was a devastating tragedy, a nine-year-old child, and just a few months after he became a national and international hero, especially in the Jewish world. The Lubavitcher Rebbe then coined a letter to Ariel Sharon, and he writes, I do not know you personally but he expresses condolences on the loss of his child. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful letter. Afterwards, they built a pretty close personal relationship. Mr. Sharon visited Lubavitcher Rebbe many times. But the Rebbe tells him one point I want to share with you tonight to illustrate this. He says when we visit somebody who's sitting shiva, there is a traditional statement of condolences. May God comfort you among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. But who is talking about Zion and Jerusalem? Why are we addressing the mourners of Zion and Yerushalayim when we come and visit somebody who lost a loved one? Whether it is in England or it is in Europe and the United States or in Australia. What's the connection to Zion and Jerusalem? And the Rebbe explained three points. He answered the question by three points. Point number one. The loss of Zion and Jerusalem is not for an individual Jewish family. It's for the entire community of Israel. We were all broken when Jerusalem and the Beis Hamikdash, the temple, were destroyed. We never recovered. We're all in exile. It's not just the loss of people who lived in Jerusalem and had a good view of the Beis Hamikdash. It affected the entire Jewish world. It affected the whole world. And hence, every death affects the entire Jewish world. Whoever, God comforts you among the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem because all the Jews suffer the loss, some consciously, some unconsciously, some more directly, some more indirectly. But it's one body, and when a piece of the body is gone, it affects the entire body. Or Adam, or one person. As many differences of opinion as there are between us, we are one person. And then the Rebbe gave another two answers. One is that just as Zion and Jerusalem were burnt physically, but the spiritual Jerusalem still lives in everybody's heart. When a person dies, their body dies, but their soul lives on. And finally, just as Zion and Jerusalem will be rebuilt, every soul which died will ultimately be returned after the coming of Mashiach with the resurrection, with Chis HaMesim, with the resurrection of the dead. This then remains the battle cry, one of the great battle cries of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, to always remember, Atem Kruyim Adam. We are one people. We are one. Let's treat each other that way. L'chaim.
You know, they tell the old anecdote about the AT&T salesman who comes to a home, rings the bell, a man opens the door and the salesman says, can I please speak to the master in this home? I have a great deal for the master of this home. Who is the master of the home? And the man says, you came exactly at the right time. Wait up here, wait here for five minutes because this exact question is being decided in the kitchen right now. This April marks another unique anniversary. It's a century since the Bayless, the Mendel Bayless trial that shook the Jewish world discussed above. But this April also marks 150th anniversary of the Civil War, which broke out in April 1861, as a result of which three years later the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, was assassinated. It was a devastating war with tragic consequences. More than 600,000 left dead at the end of the Civil War. More people killed than the number of all American soldiers killed in both world wars, the first as well as the second. Of course, the Civil War is a very heated topic in U.S. academia, in history books. Many, many works have been written. What sparked it? What triggered it? What motivated it? Could have it been avoided? Who was guilty? Etc., etc., etc. And it will be debated for many years how a young nation almost destroyed itself from within as a result of this horrific war. But we know that the main issue was slavery. The question was do we have a right? to own slaves. That, according to most scholars, remained the key issue behind the Civil War. I want to mention that the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, once at a Fabrengen, at a Shabbos gathering, speaking about the name Abraham and how Jewish children ought to be called by their Jewish names, so Abraham should be called Avraham, mentioned the fact that there was an Abraham, a president of the United States, who he defined then publicly as one of the chassidei umas ha'olam that yeshlam chelik lo'olam haba, one of the great pious of the nations of the world, who according to the Jewish tradition have a part in the world to come, referring to Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves. Coinciding with this time of the year when we celebrate our own freedom from slavery and at a time in the world when we have observed during the past months various nations in the Middle East and Africa, Muslim nations fighting for their liberty from subjugation in the hands of tyrants, Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, Syria, the ramifications and the consequences and the results are unclear, but the cry for freedom from slavery in the hands of tyrants and dictators for so many years has been one of the major dramatic developments this year.
And here, I want to share a very powerful insight. What is freedom in the Jewish tradition? There are two words for liberty in our tradition. One is choifesh and one is cheirus. Pesach is called in the prayer books Zman Cheiruseinu, the time of our freedom, the time of our liberation. Cheirus means liberty, freedom. But there's another word for freedom called Chayfesh. Also in the Bible, also in the Torah. A slave after six years, a Jewish slave says, I don't want to go out to be free. In fact, in modern Hebrew, Chofesh is the word for vacation. When you're freed from the burdens of work, your job, your office, and you go on the Yatzel Chofesh, I'm going on vacation. It's called Chofesh and the word Chofshi. But Pesach is called not Zman HaChofesh, Zman Cheiruseinu, the time of our liberty. What is the difference between Cheirus and Chofesh? The difference is very profound and very dramatic. The word Chofesh, the etymology of it is the word Chapes, to search. Lechapes, to look. Concerning chametz, it says it's, we're instructed to look lechapes, to search for the chametz. Searching, chipus. The word cherus, the etymology of it is chorus, engraved. There are two types of freedom, and this is critical to understand. There is what we call negative freedom, or passive freedom, and then there's pa- pa- positive, active freedom. One definition of freedom is that the yoke that has been previously placed on my shoulders is removed. So I'm free from the impositions, I'm free from the burdens, I'm free from the subjugation. I don't have anymore this duty, this responsibility, which I did not choose, I did not want, it was coerced. And now, this is gone. So what's the definition of freedom? It's not an active definition, a positive definition, it's a negative one. The negative... Burdens, the negative yokes that have been imposed on me, that crushed me, that superimposed themselves on me and repressed me, are now removed. So I am free to do what I want to do. This is called chafesh. But now the question is, what do I do with this freedom? So now my time belongs to me. My energy belongs to me. My destiny and fate belongs to me. I choose my future. What types of choices do I make? So you say, well, you're free. You're free to make the choices you want, not the choices your master wants, or a certain authority wants. You're free to make your choices. Granted. But what do I want? person is influenced by very many forces. I have instincts. I have habits. I may have addictions. These are my wants. And we all know I can become a slave to my instincts, to my addictions, to my proclivities, to my cravings, which will ultimately undermine me and destroy me. I can become a slave to peer pressure. They once asked, they interviewed a 104-year-old woman. And they asked her, you know, what's the best thing about reaching this ripe old age of 104? And she said, no peer pressure. There's peer pressure. 
there is cultural pressure. There's pressure of the environment. There's the dictates of what the media or the people in my sphere believe to be uh, cool, right, sophisticated, developed. So there are various forces that may subjugate me without calling it slavery. But it's really a form of slavery. It may not be slavery in the sense that someone dictates. Clearly the slavery may come from an instinct or an addiction or pressure from without. What about fear? If I'm doing something or not doing something out of fear, so I'm a slave to my fear, it's another form of slavery. Or what about a slave to guilt? Or shame, or insecurity, or pain, or hate, or bitterness, or resentment. Are these not forms of slavery? And it's all based on one cause. Chofesh, I'm free, but I'm searching. I'm searching for who I am. I don't know who I am. Real freedom means that your life is an expression of your deepest core. Of your deepest essence. Cheros. You are in touch with that which is ingrained, engraved in you. That which is truly part of you. You understand who you are in your deepest place. What your potential is. What your calling is. What you ought to be. And then you live a life on a daily basis that is an expression of your core, of your essence. So I may take you out of your prison. I may take you out of your incarceration. I may remove from you the burdens from without. But what I gave you, Chofesh, I didn't give you Cheres. In fact, in Judaism, Pesach is followed by another holiday, Shavuos. Do you know that Shavuos doesn't have a date in the Jewish calendar? Sukkot has a date, the 15th of Tishrei. Pesach has a date, the 15th of the Hebrew month of Nisan. And then you have to count 49 days. From the second day of Passover, we count 49 days. Called Sviras HaOimer. And on the 50th day, we celebrate Shavuos. Whenever the 49-day count finishes, the next day is Shavuos. Shavuos doesn't have an objective date. It's always the 50th day after Pesach. In other words... Shavuos is a continuation of Passover. It's never an independent date. Why? And the reason is because there's no real Pesach without Shavuos. Shavuos completes Pesach. Because what happened on Passover? The Jews left Egypt. They were free. They had Chofesh. Pharaoh was not their master any longer. The Egyptian legions could not come and fetch their babies and plunge them into the Nile could not subject them to slave labor, could not torture them anymore. Now they were finally free to forge their own destiny. But what type of destiny would they forge in this new gift of freedom, in this present of freedom? This is Shavuos. Shavuos, the Jewish people, stood at Sinai. And they accepted upon themselves the divine constitution. To live up to their deepest potential as human beings and as Jews. To become a mamleches koyen in begoy kadosh. A kingdom of princes and a sacred nation. Not slaves to their external cravings, habits, fears, insecurities, complexes, resentment, hatred. But expressive of their deepest core. Cherus. 
Passover led to Shavuos. There's no Pesach without Shavuos. You have the component of Chofesh, you're missing Cheros. And the true celebration of Pesach is, God tells Moses, When you take the nation out of Egypt, they will serve God at this mountain. They will not only leave Egypt, they will also come to the mountain and do something with their freedom. Do something productive and meaningful. They will now choose to live a life in which they're not slaves to Pharaoh, but they're servants to the divine. Servants to God. Servants of the reality of reality. Reflecting the ultimate truth of the cosmos, the ultimate truths of themselves, which is the godliness at the core of the world. What does Moses tell Pharaoh? Shalaches ami duni. Let my people go. Famous slogan, let my people go. But there's one more word. duni, and let them serve me. Many young people today have a lot, a lot of freedom. Lots of free time. But are they free? Are they living free, liberated lives? Do they don't substitute one slavery with another form of slavery? The liberation of slaves is the beginning. It's the Passover. Many cultures and nations, many movements and revolutions were inspired by the story of the exodus of Egypt, including the abolishment of slavery in our country and then the heroic battle of Martin Luther King to free our nation from discrimination and give civil rights to people who were created equal in the image of God. But after you give free slaves a Pesach, you have to be able to give them a Shavuos. Help them recognize not only the Statue of Liberty, but also the Statue of Responsibility, so that they should be able to live up to what it means to be a true human being created in the Divine Image. So for this you have to know what a human being is. You have to understand what a human being is. And this is a challenge that we have today. We live in an era of freedom, of prosperity. We live, thank God, in a democracy. And many Muslim nations are striving to live in such a society where nobody tells you what to do and you are free to choose your own path in life. And yet often, so many people are lost. They're lost in their freedom. They don't know what to do with their freedom. They can't find themselves in this freedom. At Sinai, the Jewish people received the blueprint, the Torah, the blueprint for life that taught them who they are. And this count between Pesach and Shavuos is extremely significant because it teaches us about how we have to value our freedom, how we have to value our days, 
In fact, it's a fascinating mitzvah, the mitzvah of counting the days. Sviras Ha'imer. Counting days. There's an obligation to count 49 days from the second day of Passover till Shavuos. And let's watch and hear how the Lubavitcher Rebbe once articulated this idea in a public address in honor of his 80th birthday on the 11th of Nisan, 1982. in the Wo der Fun ist am Muser Haskil und am Muser Niflo 
You know, they tell the story, my dear friends, about people who were sitting on an airplane, waiting to go to fly, and suddenly the door opens up, and the two pilots walk into the airplane. They're dressed in the, pilot, the uniform of pilots, but everybody's astonishment, they look blind. They're walking into the airplane with a stick feeling with the stick where they're going, and people first thought, maybe they're not the pilots, maybe they're just here, but sure enough, they go into the cockpit, they sit down. People thought maybe it's a joke, it's some humorous attempt to get them excited, you know, people on airplanes are crouching, maybe they want to live up the crowd. Sure enough, the engine is turned on and the plane starts moving. Okay, it's just moving here in the airport, gets to the runway. And the crowd is getting very, very nervous, led by two blind pilots. And lo and behold, the plane starts going faster and faster on the runway. And now the crowd is trembling. They're in fear. They're in dread. And they look out the window and they see that the plane is about to go off the runway straight into the ocean. Straight into the ocean. And they all scream, ah! And that moment when they shout plane takes off, off the ground, into the air. And one pilot is heard turning to the other pilot and says, you know, one day I'm afraid that the crowd is actually going to start screaming a little too late. And we're going to be in the water already. Did you ever consider the fact that chametz and matzah are actually identical, almost identical. I don't only mean physically, they're both bread. One is made of dough that was allowed to rise, and one is a baked of dough that was not allowed to rise. Chametz is inflated dough, like challah bread, and matzah, of course, after the flour and the water are kneaded, it's placed immediately into the oven, flat, thin, no time for the dough to rise through yeast, and hence it becomes matzah, unleavened bread. But take a, reflect a moment on the Hebrew words. Chametz has three letters, ches, mem, tzadik. Matzah has three letters, mem, tzadik, hey. 
two of the letters are identical. Mem and Tzadik exist both in the word Chametz and in the word Matzah. The difference between the two is, in Matzah there's a hey, and in Chametz there's a Ches. Matzah is Mem Tzadik, hey. Chametz is Mem Tzadik and a Ches in the beginning. Which letters in the Hebrew alphabet are the most identical? Hey and Ches. They both have a roof on the top and two legs coming down from the roof and an opening on the bottom. The difference between the two is Ches is sealed from all three sides. The roof, two legs come down from the roof and on the bottom it's open. A hay also has a roof and two legs coming down and it's open on the bottom. But on the top, between the roof of the hay and the left leg there is a little opening. Which means essentially that in the Hebrew tongue, in the Hebrew language, Matzah and Chametz are virtually identical, almost I should say. The Mem and the Tzaddik are completely the same. The He and the Ches are almost the same. This teaches us the difference between Chametz and Matzah. Between egotism, between arrogance, between excessive self-consciousness versus an ego that is healthy that is saturated with humility, with sobriety, with perspective. The two are almost equal. But there's one small difference between the two. In life, we fail. We fall. Look at the hay and the ches again. They're open on the bottom. We always stand at the edge of the abyss. We're capable of making mistakes, of stumbling, of failure. This is inherent to the human condition. We fall. The question is not whether you fall or you don't fall. Fall we do. The question is what we do with our fall. Here is the difference between the hay and the ches. A chametz person, a person with a big ego, with a sense of arrogance, once they fall, they have no way of getting back in. Why? Because a person with a big ego has a very difficult time acknowledging their vulnerability, their mistakes, their errors. The verse says in Proverbs, self-love blinds us to all of our mistakes, to all of our sins. And therefore when we fall, we cannot really acknowledge that we made a mistake. And even if we acknowledge that there was a mistake, we have other people to blame. We blame our spouses, we blame our parents, we blame our siblings, we blame our rabbis, we blame our communities, we blame our families. There's always somebody to blame. I am a victim of somebody else's behavior. And even if I don't have anybody to blame, I have only myself to blame. I often will not have the humility to seek ways in which to mend my ways, which requires a lot of humility and vulnerability. So the chess person has an inflated dough, an inflated ego. You fall, and once you fall, there's no way of coming back in. The hay person, the matzah person, also falls. But when you don't have a big ego, when your ego is healthy and balanced, you fall, and you climb up, and you crawl into the circle of life again. Because to be human, to be Jewish, does not mean to be perfect. It means to be accountable. In life, 
don't be perfect because you will not be perfect. But be accountable. Be present. What is the difference, they say, between children and adults? Children don't harbor grudges. Adults harbor grudges. How many times did your child tell you, Mommy, I hate you. I'm never talking to you again. Tati, I'm not your friend. Twelve minutes later, they become your best friend, especially when you give them a cone of ice cream. Adults also tell you sometimes, I don't like you. I'm not going to talk to you ever again. Twelve years later, they're still not on speaking terms with you. Twelve years later, they still harbor a grudge and resentment towards you. Why? Children are supposed to be far less mature than adults. Why is it that children let go of their grudges instantaneously? Where adults harbor them for weeks, months, years, sometimes decades. And if we would live long enough, centuries. And the answer given by the great mystics is that children choose being happy over being right. Adults often choose being right over being happy. Adults will often choose to be miserable, but they're going to be right. I once asked somebody, why don't you apologize? Why don't you just pick up a phone and say, I'm sorry? And he says, never. The other side will think that I am wrong, and I will never allow them to think that I am wrong because I was right. So this person suffers from a void that will not let go of them. A relentless void that makes them miserable and unhappy. But the main thing is, I am right. You see, children are matzah type of creatures. Which is why the Seder is so focused around children. Their egos have not had the time and the experience to be so inflated. They're humble matzahs. They're haze. Adults often become like chesses, like chametz. The ego expresses itself in many, many ways. Sometimes it expresses itself in arrogance. Sometimes it expresses itself in fake or displaced humility. Sometimes it expresses itself in excessive self-consciousness. I always feel myself in every situation. Every situation is about me. There was a man who came to the Holy Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said, everybody steps on me. And the Rebbe said, no, they don't step on you. It's just you spread yourself out everywhere. So wherever anybody steps, you perceive it as them stepping on you. Sometimes that itself comes from terrible insecurity. The person does not know their position in this world. And therefore they have to be everywhere because they feel that they're nothing. And sometimes we become very, very self-conscious, always focusing on the self. In every situation, I come to a wedding, I come to a class, I come to a lecture, I come to a show, I come to a mitzvah, I come to this event, that event. And I can't liberate myself from myself. That's a form of, of an, an unhealthy ego. I don't know my place in this world. I don't understand my real internal value. Sometimes the greatest egotism comes from the greatest misplaced humility and all of these situations don't allow me 
to rebuild, to come back into life after I fall. For this I need a hay. So this Pesach, try to follow this exercise. Before you respond to any question, to any remark, to any form of perceived or real criticism, tell yourself, I don't want to respond with my chametz, I want to respond with my matzah. I don't want to respond with my ego. I want to respond with my true inner self. Ego is an acronym of easing God out. When somebody tells you something, your spouse, your child, somebody else, this Pesach, do an exercise. Before you comment, before you attack, before you respond a certain way, before you run away, ask yourself, is your response now coming from an ego place or it's coming from an inner godly place? Is it coming from your external ego that is essentially insecure and doesn't know who it is? It's a really a substitute for your true self? Or is it coming from your deepest self? Is it coming from your ches? Or is it coming from your hey? When we can start responding not from an ego place, but from a genuine place, we will find the ability to climb back up and regain a new lease on life. Because the problem is not that you have fallen. The problem is not that you ruined things. The problem is not that you destroyed. The problem is that you don't have the courage to be accountable that you're protecting something you don't have to protect. You're protecting a fake sense of self called the ego, easing God out. And you're protecting it through these methods of trying to create a self that doesn't really exist. If you open yourself up, if you open yourself up, you open your heart, and you let yourself truly grow, you let yourself listen, And you're not going to melt away in the process because your true self, your true value cannot be destroyed by something wrong you did or a mistake you made. Your true value as a human being created in God's image, as a creation of God, as a reflection of God, remains regardless. Open yourself up to that. That being needs not cover-ups. It needs not to fake defense mechanisms. It can be vulnerable and strong. On the contrary, when it's truly vulnerable and naked and raw, it becomes really strong. And then you can get back into life. Like a hay, like matzah. You can get back into life and give yourself a second chance to truly live with freedom, with wholesomeness, and with happiness. L'chaim.
What's worse, my dear friends, rebelliousness or ignorance? Did you ever wonder why in the Passover Haggadah we have four children? And it seems like they are in an order of status and prominence from higher to lower. So who is number one? The Chacham, the wise child. But who is number two? The Russia, the rebellious child. Number three, the Tam, the simple child. And number four, the Sheini Yedayalisha, the one who's ignorant, the one who doesn't know to ask, doesn't know what to ask, doesn't even know there's a need to ask, there's something to ask about. There's complete ignorance. But one moment, shouldn't the Russia be at the end? Shouldn't the rebel, the wicked child be the last? I would think the wise child, the simple child, the ignorant child, and then the wicked child. Russia is number two. The Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, addressed this question once in a talk on the 13th of Nisan, 1983, just two days before Pesach, and said that from here we learn that in many ways, ignorance is far more dangerous, dangerous and detrimental than rebelliousness. Because the rebel is at least engaged in the conversation. He or she may have many questions, dilemmas, objections, problems, challenges. Granted, they may be frustrated and annoyed and rebelling, but there's a rebelliousness, there's a relationship. They're part of the process, they're part of the experience. But ignorance keeps the person completely isolated, detached. He or she doesn't even know that there's something to ask. There's nothing even to poke their interest, their curiosity. In many ways, that's far worse. I think it was Golden Meir, the Prime Minister of Israel, who once spoke about the importance of having some type of intense Jewish education in the Israeli public school, despite it being a secular public school system. And she said, I want our children to grow up knowing what they don't believe in. And the Rebbe said then that in many ways, this fourth child characterizes so many of our generation. It's been suggested indeed that the four children really reflect four generations of Jews, of immigrants, of the Altaheim of the old country, who passed over the ocean, and came either to the United States of America or to, or to Israel or to other countries around the world. The first generation of immigrants can be defined as the Ben Chacham. These were Jews who were steeped in Jewish scholarship, in Jewish observance, in Jewish tradition. And they, although they transplanted themselves and they opened a new chapter of their life in a very different country, they continued to maintain their loyalty to their heritage, to their faith to their history, to their tradition. That's how they lived. But their children can be defined as the Ben Russia. They were the rebels. They chose a new path, a new course. They removed themselves from the belief system, from the value, from the life style of their father, of their mother, in their desperate attempt to integrate and in the new opportunities that they observed to become part of the melting pot 
they often removed a lot or most or all of those traditions, of those mitzvahs that their parents were so meticulous about. Their children, the grandchildren, the third generation of immigrants, they are defined as the Tam. The Tam is a confused child. He grew up in the home of secular parents, but in the home of religious grandparents. This is a child who, although he grew up in the secular home and in the public school, nonetheless, he knows or she knows a lot about Yiddishkeit from the Zayda, from the Baba. He or she has seen their grandmother light candles every Friday evening. The father, the Zayda, saying Kiddush. The grandfather even slept some of the grandchildren to shul once in a while. The grandchildren know a lot of Yiddish lullabies and Yiddish expressions. A lot of culture and tradition passed on to them through their grandparents. So they, are, they, they live in two worlds in many ways. They grew up in a secular home, but they're confused because they also saw something of the old Judaism. And that nostalgia left an impact on them. But then there is the fourth generation. And this is a generation that began a few decades ago and now continues the fourth and the fifth generation. The fourth generation, this is a child who already did not see the grandparents and he or she doesn't even know that there's something serious to ask. They don't know to ask. They don't know what to ask. They don't know how to ask. They don't know that there's a need to ask. There's just complete alienation. Complete apathy. And in many ways, the Rebbe suggested this has more tragic ramifications even than number two. Because number two is involved in the story even if in a negative way. The story defines them, even by the fact that they have to rebel against it. But their rebelling against it is their relationship with it. You know, sometimes people rebel against something their whole life, and that's the way they love it. That's the way they live it, by fighting it. But the Sheinah Yoidei Elisha, the fourth child, is completely alienated. They tell the anecdote about a man, Mr. Cohen, who came to visit his son who was studying in the Hebrew school of a temple every Sunday. The temple had a Hebrew school for the kids where they would study some basic Judaism, do Hanukkah coloring books. And the father came to visit his boy one Sunday afternoon and he meets him in the hall. Hey David, how are you? Great dad to see you. David, how is Hebrew school treating you? David says, daddy, it's great. He says, David, tell me. I want to ask you a question. Who broke the tablets? The boy looks at his father and he says, Daddy, I swear to you it was not me. I did not do it. I didn't do it. The father gets very upset. He goes into his classroom, meets the teacher, says, Are you the teacher of my David? Yes, I am, Mr. Cohen. Do you know I asked my child who broke the tablets? And you know what he tells me? He tells me, It was not me. I swear I didn't do it. I didn't even think of doing it. What type of teacher are you? And the teacher looks at the distraught father and he says I have known your son now for seven months if he said he didn't do it he didn't do it 
an infuriated father runs into the principal's office. You are the principal of this lousy school? I ask my son who broke the tablets. He says, I didn't do it. I ask his teacher what is going on. His teacher says, if he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. Aren't you ashamed with this school that you lead? And the principal looks at him with a face of compassion and sensitivity and composed yet attentive. He says, Mr. Cohen, I understand your frustration and I'm so sorry. I want to promise you right here at this moment that we will compensate you for the broken tablets. We are so sorry that they broke. Just give us a receipt and we will pay you back for these broken tablets. Ignorance. And this too was one of the great calls of all Jewish leaders in all ages, especially in this age, including the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who never stopped urging that we learn and learn and teach. And if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. And if you know Bayes, teach Bayes. Because in the Rebbe's world, education, knowledge, wisdom was the tool to engage people, to engage Jews, to empower Jews. So that, even if we don't have all the answers, we can at least know that there is so much to ask. And we can ask the questions. And here, since I'm a Jew, I'm going to make a commercial that recently we at the yeshiva.net have expanded our series of classes and courses on Judaism and every single evening you can find there another new class or course by great teachers on various parts of Torah and of Judaism whether Talmud, Biblical studies, law, psychology and so forth spirituality, Hasidism to learn, to explore both for advanced students for, for beginner students this is on www.theyeshiva.net and tonight at such a great time I urge you all to engage more in learning in discovering in exploring so that we at least know to ask. They once asked a Jew, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And he said, I don't know, and I don't care. Ignorance breeds apathy. Knowledge and wisdom breeds caring. And it breeds inspiration. Every morning in the services and our prayers, we may say a special prayer before the Shema in the morning prayers. The same Bilibainubina we say to God, give us wisdom in our hearts. Lahavin Ulahaskil to discern, to understand. Lishmaya to listen. 
Lilmoid to learn, Lilamid to teach. Lishmoir Velaso is to preserve and to do. Ulakayim is called Divri Samotere Sachabava. To fulfill the words of your Torah with love. Illuminate our eyes in your Torah. Connect our hearts to your mitzvahs. Came the Rebbe at that talk and said, You're in a generation which so many people don't even know that is a question. Lest you think that you could isolate yourself, you're going to live among people who are learned, who are educated, comes the Haggadah and says, there is a fourth child who doesn't know to ask, at Psachloi. You must open up the window. You must build bridges of mutual respect, of mutual understanding. Engage him or her. It Trigger their interest, trigger their passion, find every method to bring them in. So that they could begin to study, begin to explore, begin to ask. At psachloi, they may not ask. But it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to open the window. To open the door, to build a bridge. And to bring in even this child to the Seder table. And help him or her explore and discover the majesty and the depth of Judaism. The Rebbe asked that everybody become a teacher. Everybody in their own way become an educator. Everybody in their own way share wisdom, depth, Torah and inspiration with somebody else. To kindle sparks, to illuminate lives, to embrace souls. And we could never remain detached because Atem Kruyim Adam, we are all one Adam, one human being. And therefore, even though our matzah has been split, even though our people are often divided, but ultimately at the end of the Seder, we bring back the second part of the matzah that's been split. We bring it back to the Seder table. And then together we can declare Lashana Haba Birushalayim. Next year and this year in Jerusalem. Lachayim.